Welcome to Interplay, Conversations and Music. This is your host, Michael Shapiro. And today I have a, a fun guest, a friend, which I really like to say friend because we enjoy each other's company so much. Composer Michael Shelley from Indianapolis. Hi, Michael. Good morning, sir. Great to see you. Great to see you. You know, when I conjure up the name Michael Shelley as a composer, I am absolutely amazed as a fellow composer of equal, almost equal age group as you. <laughs> We're only separated by a year. And what I'm I find incredible is the range and number of compositions you have written. I mean, it, it, I'm not going to compare it to anybody else, but, you know, if you talk about the, quotes, historic composers, you're ahead of some of them in number of compositions. It's utterly <laughs> incredible. Yeah, and well, the, the quantity quality uh, issue comes up, I guess. <laughs> well, you know. Uh, oh, but thank uh, you. Thank you. It, it, is a, it shows, a, uh, in my mind, a, an ability and a something to say a lot. But if you go with the chrono chronological listing that I found on a few sites, first off, there is something that you notice. You don't call pieces A2 number one, symphony number three, <laughs> or sonata number 28. You have titles like El Salon Medico, Swashbuckler, Play Us Chastity, I'm just jumping around, Blast, Extraction, Nagoya Spiral, Rain, Ra'aman, just going through the list. It's Golden Bells, The Big Night, Spider Baby, <laughs> The Beast of Brazil, but my all-time favorite, Michael, Exorcism of the Sugar Plum Fairy. That was, <laughs> has to be one of my favorite titles that I've Thank ever you. heard, except for El Salon Medico. So <laughs> let's... <t> <laughs> It's just, un it's breathtaking. Well, now, you really, I, I have fun. I, I just, you know, and if people like it, that's great. I've gotten in a little trouble over the years with the exorcism piece. Uh, a few orchestras have asked if they could change the title. So it's actually registered with BMI under two separate titles, the uh, the more user-friendly title and then the uh, the original Urtex title. The Urtex, the Shelley Urtex S number 1022 <laughs> where's mr kershaw when we need him you know so <laughs> i'm gonna have fun on this talk i could just tell you know what's great about the two of us by the way I'm, I'm really honored that that you asked me to join you with this i mean i, I oh, come on. on the heels of of recent i mean jennifer higdon and, and and marty bresnick incredible interviews so i'm thrilled to be in in that company thank well, you so much you know you do something which is unique to you and what you do in your writing um as we see godzilla there on your piano is that there is a combination <laughs> there there is a combination of seriousness but also fun now can you talk about how do you put fun into notes i i guess I'll start this way. Um, I have a piece called Samurai with, that I that I wrote uh, about 20 years ago, an orchestra piece that was dedicated to my dad. Uh, he had had a massive stroke and he was going to be passing away pretty soon. And so I wrote it for my dad. It's very serious. It's very heavy. 
Uh, it's very emotional. People cry in the in the final section. And at uh, one of the performances, I forget which orchestra, uh, uh, a man who knew my music came back to me backstage and said, I've never heard this kind of emotion from you. I'm always laughing with your music. And here's this piece, this other side of you. And, and I was honored, but at the same time, I was a little frightened because I thought about half of my catalog is so-called you know, emotional and serious. I have a, a World War II uh, remembrance piece that's very, very heavy, but I do love to have a lot of fun. A recent piece is called the Eisenstein Mummers for chamber ensemble with three accordions and a bunch of other instruments. And it's a mix up of Sergi Eisenstein and the Mummers Parade in Philadelphia. I just love having that kind of wink of the eye, tongue in the cheek, a little bit dark humor. But doesn't it also present opportunities for the composer? Don't you think of juxtaposing styles and kinds of, of textures and instrumentation? I've always loved to do that. I've always loved to find a way to fuse different approaches, uh, but have it make sense rather than sound like a crazy quilt. That, that's, that's always been my goal. To find, uh, because I, I, I love a diminished chord, but I also love a 12-tone chord. So I, I, I like to find ways to blend and fuse rather than mix and match. And I've been doing that really my whole career since out of out of graduate school. One of my teachers in graduate school, um, Marty Bresnik and I have this in common, Arnold Franchetti at the Hart School, uh, he said to me in one of our lessons, your, your career will be in the theater. And I said, no, 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 I did that already. I was a theater major, now I'm a composer. And he said, no, 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 your music will be in the theater. I said, no, 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 I don't want Broadway. I don't want, he said, no, 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 no. Your music will always be very theatrical. And that wow. was that was 40 years ago. And he was right. And I've really enjoyed embracing that. Now let's the talk theater. about, let's talk about that. What does that mean that one, um, you know, music is theatrical? I mean, if you, if you look, for example, at the piano concerto of Mozart, there is a direct line between, for example, the 20th uh, concerto of Mozart, the piano concerto, and Don Giovanni. There's no question. And, you know, there have been books written about the operatic connection because we know that Mozart wanted to have a good time pretty much all the time, even when he was mm -hmm. writing dark music. So mm -hmm. I know we want to have a good time, but how do we make the audience enjoy and understand that quotes, good time we're having, even when we're deeply serious. I agree 100%. I feel that if I, I have to enjoy what I'm doing first before the possibility that somebody else can enjoy it. Right. Uh, I've never, uh, I've never been a bandwagon jumper or trying to manipulate so I can get more money or get more performances. Uh, that's okay for some composers. That's fine to kind of write in a formula kind of fashion because you can guarantee some things. But um, I'm perfectly fine with, with just me being really happy about what I'm doing when I go to bed at night. And uh, when, when I was a very young composer, uh, I, I, my idealistic uh, reaction from an audience would be if three or four people 
liked my piece or got the humor, I'd be thrilled. I'm up to five or six now. If I can get five or six people, you know, I have a little little higher goal right now. Let's talk about the business of music because it's something you, you teach at Butler and have for many years in Indianapolis. You get this young student and they're they're looking like they could have something, you know? They they're serious, they study their counterpoint, they do their lessons, they come prepared. <laughs> As a teacher, you know this is not always the case. That's true. But let's say they come. Okay. And they're really they're directed in a way we like to think of ourselves as have as have been directed. Right. So what do you tell them about quotes the business of music and getting out there? So I'm, you're now talking to the young composer of 22 years old, 20 years old, 19 years old. I wrote the symphony. How can I get it performed? <laughs> what are you telling them? I have, uh, as, as I've taught for many years, I've gotten a little bit more liberal in the way I deal with my students. I remember one student asked me that a few years ago, how can I get more performances? And I just, it blurted out and I love this kid, but I said, it just blurted out and I said, write better music. Uh, so, <laughs> it's uh, seriously- but that's not it, the whole story because you know, there are many people, I exactly. would say, um, there are many people who are, I would say, great business people. I'm not mentioning names, but lousy composers. And this is not anything that's unusual. If we go back in historical times, mm -hmm. those people who became Kapellmeisters under that archbishop or that king, mm -hmm. a lot of them knew how to work through the, the system, as it were. Yeah. Yeah. But my God, they wrote dreadfully. <laughs> so you're a case in my book of somebody who doesn't write dreadfully, who's very unique. It's Michael Shelley's music. It's not wow. anybody else's. Thank you. But that's your story. For that young student, not write better music, what do they need to know? Is there something more than write better music these days? The uh, Yeah, and I was just kidding about that. It was just, just blurted out. We laughed about it, and then we got to serious talk. Of course. Um, for me, the, the, the first, the number one uh, important aspect for a young composer to start getting out there is to be a genuine person and to be a friendly person and to be uh, not arrogant, not full of yourself, be humble, but don't be self-deprecating. Find that, 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 that middle road, that, that fine line between those two things where you can be confident, uh, but not super overconfident, especially when you're 19, 20 years old. Yes. Uh, very few of us can, can, can go back to those years and, and, and say we knew all the answers, although we did know all the answers right, when we were 20, right? And didn't trust anybody over 30. Wow. Um, so that, that's, that's the main thing. I also uh, talk uh, constantly about making contacts and making friends and, and make sure it's genuine, that it's not just kind of of, of, of bullying, like, you know, you should play my piece, or I'm going to be friends with you, so you will play my piece. You know, have genuine relations, like you and I have become. Whether you and I promote each other's music or not, doesn't really matter to us in the long run because of our friendship. But things happen as a result. Uh, so I really push that. I've had too many students that are a little too full of themselves or, or uh, the other side, um, they're they're so humble that they're like, well, you know, would you take a look at my 
piece. No, you might not like it. That, that's, that's the other side. Uh, I really urge all my students to try lots of different styles. Mm-hmm. If they think they don't like something, uh, I had a student recently hated minimalism. I said, why'd you hate minimalism? He said, well, I just, I don't like it. I said, have you ever written a minimal? No, no, no. So I had the student write one and he thought it was pretty eye-opening that Philip Plass and Steve Reich and John Adams and Michael Nyman and all those guys, they're pretty good composers because this stuff's hard to write to do it to do it well. Conversely, I had a student who did nothing but minimalism. Uh, one day I said, why don't you try writing a piano piece with no bar lines to see where that could go? And he's like, well, what do I do? <laughs> and Fast forward about 10 years, he's finishing up his doctorate at a very prestigious school of music, and he's writing no bar lines all the time. Ah. Yeah, yeah, those kinds of moments feel good. For a few minutes, let's just, very few minutes, but it's, it's an important subject to me because I come from French training. Sure. What is the rigor of contrapuntal training that is necessary for that 19, 20, 21-year-old composer to get ahead? You mentioned uh, Philip. You mentioned Philip Glass, who had similar training to me. He was Boulanger. Yeah, yeah. I was yeah. uh, son of Boulanger through Elie Siegmeister. But then, <laughs> I st- but then I studied, you know, ear training with Rene Longy, who was ridiculously difficult. So, but it, it's fundamental to my. I had f- almost five years of strict uh, species counterpoint. You know, me too. Me too. You too. So it shows. And, I, and, 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 and I agree with you 100%. Uh, my counterpoint teachers had studied counterpoint with Hindemith. Uh, Paul Fettler was my principal counterpoint teacher. We did in, in uh, my doctorate program. He, uh, he had us doing invertible mirror retrograde fugues. We're all tearing our hair out. It's still gone. Uh, I have none. But the discipline and the rigor and the uh, what you learn from working with that is so important. And it's interesting. It hit me the other day. I saw uh, during quarantine, I watch a lot of old programs on TV rather than news. I can't handle it. So I saw an Alfred Hitchcock uh, program that had a very famous star in it from the Shakespeare Theater. I saw a Columbo episode that had Lawrence Harvey in it. Now this oh. guy was trained in Shakespeare. The guy's wow. an incredible actor, but he was great in Columbo too. And I thought, that's me. And that's what I want my students to be, to have that foundation, to have that uh, Franchetti again. And Marty, I'm sure heard this too, Marty Bresnik. You can't build a skyscraper on glass feet. And I, well, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> it hit me what it meant, that foundation, that strong foundation. So I'm a big, big fan of the traditional European training for uh, for an undergrad, the counterpoint. And I think a lot of the colleges don't make it. From what a I've lot seen. of schools have fused it, blended it with the, with the theory sequence. So they get a little bit of it, but it's not a concentration. We do two semesters and we do an also uh, a, an extra semester of advanced counterpoint where we do 20th century counterpoint on mm-hmm. top of really complex box stuff. But I would venture to say that two semesters plus that other semester is only, a, it's, a, it's not enough. But it's fine for undergrad. It's fine for undergrad to get started. I was doing yeah. it in my, in my. I was doing it while I was in high school. Wow! Wow! <laughs> wow. 
No, I, you know, I'll never forget it. It was the most brilliant thing I could ever have done. And and my students, I have private students, a few, and I, I'm putting them through Fuchs from the direct book. If it was good enough for Mozart, Haydn, and Beethoven, it's good enough for them. It's the way I view it. It was good enough for me. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, now I, I'd like to talk to you about um, the oeuvre of Michael Shelley. <laughs> If you were going to point our listeners to four or five pieces that they could hear or see in YouTube or Vimeo, what pieces would you point them to and why? Wow. Um, it's like I have two kids. Which one would I put up for people to get to know me <laughs> on any given day? Go for uh, it, Michael. Yeah. Uh, I, I think to show... I've always loved eclecticism. I've always loved exploring 20th century arts that are not music, poetry, philosophy, um, theater, literature. Uh, so most of the pieces that I would suggest have something to do with those things. Spider Baby is a good example. Uh, it is actually a title taken from a very, very bad Lon Chaney Jr. 1960s horror movie, like a budget of <laughs> dollars <laughs> but it's, it's a chamber orchestra piece right the chamber orchestra piece yeah it's been done by a couple of full orchestras but it really to me is most effective with the intimacy of the chamber orchestra but it's while i was discovering that piece was written in the 90s while i was discovering post-bop avant-garde jazz and i was falling in love with with uh ornette coleman and uh Roland Kirk, and I was just finally learning about these people. And so that had an influence in the piece. And and I wouldn't say much of my music has a jazz influence, but that piece is one where I really dug into that. My World War II piece from 2015 called Resilience, which is a double concerto for uh, viola, cello, and orchestra. Very, very meaningful to me, um, written for the 70th anniversary of the end of World War II, mm. um, dedicated to my dad, who was in the U.S. Navy for four years out in the Pacific Theater. Bless his heart. Uh, so the first movement is 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 the Eastern European, the, the European theater. The second movement is the Pacific theater. And the third movement is called Blast of Silence. It's the bomb, basically the bomb, wow. but it's not explosive music. It's aftermath of the bomb. So that piece was to be done by three different orchestras this year to celebrate the 75th anniversary of the well, end. We won't talk about lost opportunities. All got canceled. We're but alive. They, they we're said alive. They're, we're alive and you're alive. You're a COVID survivor. Yeah. Um, and all the orchestras said we'll be doing it in 21, 22. So that'll, I'll look forward to those. Al Capone. Al Capone. Put that on the list. <laughs> All right. What I just mentioned Al Capone. Tell our, our viewers why. What is why am I mentioning Al Capone? Uh, I, I received the commission to do a an approximately 30 to 45 minute chamber opera that would be coupled with eight songs for the Mad King. And when I received that commission, it was very attractive. 
but I was scared to death. Eight Songs of Mad King is one of the greatest masterpieces ever. I was in a performance of it at heart years and years and years ago. Peter Maxwell Davies, you're talking about. Yeah, 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 Peter Maxwell Davies. And that's always been like one of my top 10 pieces of all time. And I thought, oh, for God's sake, I have to go in with that. And one of the greatest compliments I received was uh, the, the, the dean of a music school came up to me after the performance and said, you held your own with eight songs. And I thought, wow, I got a chill from that. Uh, They said you could do anything you want. Um, And so I came back with some thoughts about Samuel Beckett. I've always been a huge fan of his novel, Watt, and his three novellas, Malone, Malloy, uh, and his plays. And I love uh, how he's kind of post-James Joyce rambling. And I thought, I'm going to do an, a, a half hour chamber opera that just rambles all the time, nonsensical. Huh. Uh, but one day, as I was starting to come up with my own script, one day I walked into my uh, den and for some reason staring at me from the shelf were my two Al Capone books. And on the spine of the books, it says Capone. And I thought, I, I think I want to do something with that. And I started researching him after he left um, Alcatraz. He was so, uh, so um, in such bad physical shape from 25 years of untreated syphilis. He was like a Beckett novel. He just Ah. rambled and stumbled and like a nine-year-old. And I thought, oh my God, I'll put it all together. Samuel Beckett and Al Capone and out it came. Two of my favorites. So. All right. We've that, got, so, we've, yeah, we've, the, the libretto, <laughs> the libretto is, is by me, uh, wow. but it's also a collection of just uh, uh, names of people in his family, uh, things that he said while he was at Alcatraz. Um, and there's a lot of mumbling and, and uh, yeah, I had a blast doing that piece. And again, that's one of those pieces. It's not going to be a top 10. It's not going to be, um, you know, performed by every university or every opera company across the country because it's a little eccentric. It's very eccentric. But I had a blast. I had a blast writing it. And the Michael, describe the how many singers, how many singers, and what's the instrumentation? One scene, thirty minutes, with one voice, one nonstop scene, one voice. Ten. And how many? What instruments? Uh, uh, if I rec- it's a, it's about ten chamber ensemble, <clears throat> about ten instruments: piano, percussion, a couple of strings. Uh, two low woodwinds, bass clarinet, barry sax, tenor sax, good. Uh, accordion, huh. uh, a couple other things I care. Oh, it's a she- yeah, it's a, a Shelley. It's a Shelley. What I yeah, love it's, it's a, a it's a monodrama gone mad is what it is. <laughs> I've actually been in two of his cells. I was at this. I was in the cell at the Pennsylvania uh, uh, Correctional Facility in Philadelphia. You know uh, where he had a luxurious situation uh yes kind of yes and they have a recreation uh, a, re- a re- recreated uh cell with beautiful furniture and beds and he but he was with some guy oh, he started yeah. to be with another guy who thought he was the luckiest person in the world and maybe not the luckiest person in the world to have this greatest cell in the 
history yeah. of cells. But then yeah. I was also I was also in the Alcatraz cell, which is dire. So, what a misery! Wow. What a, you know, what a great idea too to yeah. make an opera about this. It was it was a lot of fun. a lot of fun when it was done in in Poland last year. I asked them why why are you interested, and they said, "Oh, we love Al Capone in Poland." And while we were there in Warsaw, there's actually an Italian restaurant in downtown Warsaw called Capone's. <laughs> like, so yeah, that was I never saw that oh, coming. That it would be done. That is bizarre. Now, yep. choice of repertoire. You have written also a great amount of chamber music, I assume, for a lot of your friends. And you've written... Uh, good... Yeah. Some some for friends, some that come out of the blue from people right. that have gotten to know my music, but right. a lot for friends, especially piano. Especially piano. And for then, my wife and for a good friend. For your wife, Mia, who's an astounding pianist and composer. Yep. So... What's it like to be in a house with another composer piano? <laughs> um, we have very little in common. Our, our age is very far apart. Our culture, she's native of Tokyo. Our culture is completely different. Our interest in food has only one intersection. That's Indian food. We both adore that. Other that's than that, uh, Japanese food, it's like, whoa, I can't handle the raw this and the fermented soybeans and and likewise she has a little trouble with bratwurst and sauerkraut <laughs> or, <laughs> or a cheeseburger um but and you're a midwestern guy so you know yeah 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 yeah, yeah. With a bratwurst right. background <laughs> that's right that's right michael uh, to conclu conclude this i just want to talk to you about influences because i'm fascinated by that okay uh, i know okay. I, it's taken me a long time to figure out where i'm from but where are you from musically or <laughs> no we won't talk about the personal stuff because we're friends we can have that off having a brat and a beer when when i come out to indianapolis that's a whole nother conversation not um, for publication i might add but uh -huh. let's just talk musically okay whose music turns you on from the past and the present excluding wow. me <laughs> Um, number one will always be Bach and whether it's because of all that counterpoint you know that when I did that um, in, in my doctor program when I did that triple invertible mirror fugue it's I was so proud and I think I'm still more proud of that than just about anything I've done you know I did it I really did it like the like like the, the dads in the music man that's my Billy he really did it um, Bach is always number one. Believe it or not, in my top five is Tchaikovsky. I, I, the emotion just I'm, blows I'm, my mind. Unbelievable. And and it pisses me off, or excuse me, it bothers me that he is a footnote in music history books because he doesn't quite have that academic um, dogma or whatever. It's, it's baloney for me. I, I, I've heard Nutcracker a million times. My daughter danced in it when she was nine years old. It's perfect. I brought, brought to tears every single time. It's perfect. The symphony, the sixth symphony, the 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 the, the pathetic movement, the, the slow, tragic movement. Unbelievable. It's unbelievable. So I bucked the academic system and have Tchaikovsky way up there for me. Way at the bottom of my list, interestingly enough, is Mahler. Ooh, uh, to me, I'm sorry. To me, it feels bloated and fake. Now, 
taken with a grain of salt, I was in school in an era where Mahler was considered not much. So that's kind of how I grew up. Uh, Wagner and Strauss were elevated. Mahler was put down. Bruckner elevated. Um, currently, I'm I'm a big fan of John Adams. I think uh, so many pieces that he's turned out. I, the Love Affair started with Harmon Lear. I think it's one of the greatest orchestra pieces of all time. Uh, talk about bringing tears to your eyes. That last movement of Harmon Lear, uh, where he's flying through the sky with his daughter, you know, holding on to his neck, and it's like I I'm going to come to tears just thinking about that piece. Uh, Nixon, I've seen live a couple times, absolutely mind-blowing, complete, completely original. For me, it really does it. Uh, Klinghoffer did it pretty good. Uh, Dr. Atomic was not my favorite, but um, but uh, Klinghoffer and and, uh, and a lot of his more recent pieces where he's moved away from his earlier 1980s style, it's just, just, just top drawer stuff. Um, <coughs> Other current composers, I'm a big fan of um, Steve Mackey, who's at Princeton. Um, every time I hear a piece, I'm just like, are you kidding me? This is incredible. It's virtually every time. Uh, and then I, I, I'm, I'm a big uh, fan of film music, uh, more than a fan. I've been involved in doing scores for some well, films. I know, and you wrote the, the book, The Score. And, and a book, a film music book in 2000. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly impressed by a number of composers that have <coughs> decided to find that career without abandoning their own integrity. Elliot Goldenthal is oh, he's wonderful. Incredible. Don Davis, actually, who uh, is a Juilliard grad, Don Davis, The Matrix films. What are you doing now? In two words or less, what are you writing? Uh, I am in the middle of an orchestra piece um, commissioned by a couple of different orchestras. The premiere will be with the Dayton Philharmonic. Um, the piece is called 2020 Hell on Earth. Oh my. And it is meant to be done. <laughs> now, Dayton was one of the commissioners because a year and a half ago, I did a piece for them for their Halloween concert called Virus. Oh, and that piece was premiered Ooh. four months before COVID Ooh. hit. Ooh. So Neil Gettleman, the conductor there, called me up and said, it's your fault. It's your fault. I said, I didn't. <laughs> He's quite the conductor. Very prophetic title, I might add. And I take that title very seriously, as you well know. Yes, Michael, I know. <laughs> this has been a delight. Michael Shelley, composer extraordinaire from Indianapolis, Indiana. Thank you so much for being on Interplay, Conversations in Thank Music. Thank you for having me, Michael. It's been a blast. We'll see you soon. I'm your host, Michael Shapiro, for Interplay, Conversations on in Music. Thank you for joining us.